We are reading several passages today. We're going to start in Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to read 9 through 12 and 16 through 17. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners who have the hope. This very day I am declaring that I will restore double to you. Verse 16. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his land. For what comeliness and beauty will be theirs. Grain will make the young men flourish, and new wine the virgins. Now let's turn to Psalm 118. I'm going to start in verse 22, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now turn to Matthew 21. I'll start in verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now turn to Luke 19. I'm going to start in verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you'd known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we see with Israel, they received the Lord with joy until they found out what he was about. That the way led to the cross. 
and for them it would lead to the cross. And nobody wanted to follow him when they saw that. So too it is with us in these days, Father. Many people receive the news of salvation with joy until they know that that way involves death and that way involves a cross, Lord. But yet we see the testimony of your faithfulness in the lives of many, and you are faithful to carry us on that road and through that suffering and to take up our cross and to follow you and to receive as a good gift from you the holiness without which no man will see God. Father, I pray that we would not be fickle and we would not be amongst those who turn back, but we would be amongst those who are found faithful, faithful to the very end, following Jesus, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Like Jesus, for the sake of the glory set before us, we want to see him, Lord. May we be those who love his appearing. I pray, Father, that you would give Tom the words you want us to have and want us to hear this morning. And put your word in our heart. Put the love of Jesus in our hearts. And let us be those who rejoice at his appearing. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to be back. I haven't gotten to listen to Bob's message from last week yet, but I've heard very good things about the challenge in that message, and I, and I want to be challenged myself, so I'm going to get it online and listen to it. A couple of years ago, might have been three, they're ticking by at a very rapid rate lately, my dear brother Hasek politely asked me why we at CBC don't seem to make much of a special issue out of Palm Sunday. And he just very respectfully suggested that Palm Sunday is a big deal. And he was absolutely right. Uh, I confess it's taken a long time for me to act on his, his thoughtful question, but when I mentioned that to the elders, the elders universally said, yeah, he's right. <laughs> it's a big deal. So this morning, we are looking at the events that occurred on the very first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. Aside from the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, there are only a handful of specific events from Jesus' earthly life that are mentioned in all four Gospels. And this is one of them. The entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem on the last Sunday before His death and His reception by the multitudes in that city as the long-promised King and Savior is recorded in all the Gospels and it's critically important. But what did it mean? <laughs> what was the point of those events? And why did the response of the crowds in Jerusalem toward Jesus on Sunday change so dramatically by Friday? Carrie just read for us parts of Matthew's and Luke's account of those events, but he also, at my request, read from two Old Testament passages that we need to understand in order to know what was going on, what the Jews understood was going on on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9 is the passage that prophesied the coming of the promised king just and endowed with salvation, humble and riding on a donkey. The Gospels very directly declare that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, He fulfilled that prophecy. Psalm 118 prophesied the response of the crowds on that day. 
the response that we find in each of the Gospels in different forms. The essence of it is, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that word, that word Hosanna comes from a Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana, in Psalm 118.25. It means, please save. But by the, by the time these events occurred in A.D. 33, that phrase, please save, Hoshiana, had been abbreviated to a single word, Hosanna, and it had changed in meaning. Instead of a plea for salvation, it had become a salutation to the One who brings salvation. It was a declaration of praise to the Savior. In effect, the crowds were saying, Here's the Savior. Blessed is the One who comes in the name of the Lord. In other Gospel accounts, Jesus is acknowledged by the crowd as the King of Israel, as the Son of David. In Mark's Gospel, the crowd declares, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. See, the multitude in Jerusalem was acknowledging Jesus as the Christ. The promised Messiah. Throughout the Gospels, throughout His time on this earth, people have been asking that question. Is this the Christ? Now they were directly declaring Him to be that promised Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King sent by God. And we've been studying the Gospel of John for the last several months at CBC. Who can tell me what John's stated purpose is for including the specific signs and wonders that he includes in his Gospel? He tells us in chapter 20 what that purpose is. Can anybody tell me? Well, that's right. There you go. Was that Emil? that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. That's John twenty twenty one. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's what these people were saying. Jesus is the Christ. Now, I don't think they got the Son of God part just yet. And that was critically important. But the things that they were proclaiming about Jesus were things they had to believe about Him in order to be saved. Their declarations about Him were sufficiently accurate to get the Pharisees really stirred up. Stirred up to the point that the, the Pharisees went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you got to tell your followers to quit saying this stuff. But Jesus responded to those Pharisees by saying, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The people were saying true things about Jesus. So how did their response change so quickly and so dramatically for the worse? How did this multitude gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover that would fulfill all of the Passovers go from, <laughs> go from acknowledging Jesus as the Christ on Sunday to angry declarations, angry demands for his death as a fraud and a blasphemer on Friday of that same week. Their, their very favorable response to Jesus on Sunday was a grassroots movement. It was a movement of the 
of the multitude, not of the leaders. The leaders had been trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus for at least a year already. This throng of excited, exuberant people was made up of many who had been following Jesus around, watching Him do His miracles, listening to what He had to say. And it was also no doubt made up of many on that day who were just following the crowd reaction in in Jerusalem. But if this was a grassroots movement, (laughs) Jesus came into town with a weed eater. Imagine for a moment an exiled king returning to the capital of his kingdom to reclaim that capital and all his lands from the hands of invaders that had long been occupying his land and subjugating his people. A king returning to establish his rightful claim over his land, his people, and his throne. As he enters through the gates of his capital city, He finds people filling the streets with excited praise for Him and calling for the establishment of His kingdom. How do you think it would go over if that king took that opportunity to publicly point out the unworthiness of those people? In fact, the unworthiness of any people to be subjects in His kingdom. How did Jesus respond to all the fervent adoration that he was receiving on that Palm Sunday. Did he say, yes, you people finally get it. You finally know who I am. You're finally ready for me to establish my kingdom. Just wait till you hear my agenda for the first hundred days. You're going to love it. Is that how he responded? Not quite. I want you to listen again as I read the words that Jesus spoke as He entered the city on Palm Sunday, before He got to the temple. And when He approached, Luke says, He saw the city and He wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. See, this people wanted peace. They wanted to be free from dominion by the Romans. They wanted that peace through strength that is so often talked about in our culture. But they didn't want the peace that Jesus came to give them. But they had to have that peace if they were ever going to be subjects in His glorious kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. Jesus went on to say, Luke 19.43, For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children with you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus really knew how to leverage political momentum, didn't He? How's that for rallying the subjects of the kingdom? How could Jesus see the clothes and palm branches being spread before Him like a royal carpet and hear the loud praises of the people welcoming Him as Savior and long-awaited King and then say those things? Here's how. 
He knew what was in the hearts of men. He knew that they were celebrating the right Savior, but the wrong salvation. And you cannot receive Jesus as Savior if you reject the salvation that He died to give. Now what made the salvation that they were expecting the wrong salvation was not that God hadn't promised it. Over and over in the Old Testament, God promised Israel that He is going to return. He's going to regather His people from the ends of the earth and bring them back to the land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to vanquish all their enemies, establish His kingdom with His King ruling on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, not just over the Jews, but over all the nations of the earth in perfect justice and righteousness. He will be their God and they will be His people forever. There was nothing wrong with this multitude wanting that salvation. But what ensured that most of the people in that multitude would quickly reject Jesus as Savior is that they did not want the salvation that absolutely has to come before that one. They wanted to skip to the end right then. What if the perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just king comes to claim his throne, his land, and his people, but all the people in the land are unholy, unrighteous, and unjust? What if, as Paul says in Romans 3, there is no one good, not even one? There is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous, not even one. What salvation has to happen before the kingdom can be realized? Many of you were here for our study of Zechariah a few years ago. So here's a little pop quiz. Does anyone remember the central appeal that God was making to His people in that amazing book written hundreds of years before Jesus came? That A book that's all about Jesus? Remember what the central appeal of that book is? It's in the first three verses of the book of Zechariah. Specifically in verse 3. That's all the hints I'm giving you. Return to Me. Return to Me that I may return to you. Return to Me that I may return to you. That's how it works. At the end of Zechariah 9, the same chapter that foretold the coming of the anointed King to Jerusalem, just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. At the end of that chapter, the people, the subjects of that kingdom that that King will establish are described like this. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of His people, for they are like jewels in a crown sparkling over His land. How lovely and beautiful they will be. That's the Holman translation. I'm going to read it again. They are like jewels in a crown sparkling over His land. How lovely and beautiful they will be. Where were those people on Palm Sunday? Where were those subjects of the glorious King whose lives so reflected His character that they were like precious jewels in His crown sparkling in His land? Where 
were those subjects. They were nowhere to be found. And there's the rub. What has to happen before God ushers in the just and righteous reign of His promised King over His worthy subjects? (laughs) He has to create those worthy subjects. Titus 2.14 has to happen. I'm going to start at verse 11 in Titus 2 just to set up the context for that powerful verse. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what our worship was about this morning. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. See, that's the salvation that's coming. That's the kingdom that's coming. Our focus is supposed to be on that kingdom. But then verse 14, Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself, purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's the salvation that has to happen before the kingdom can be realized. Where does our holy, just, glorious, righteous King find worthy subjects for His kingdom? He doesn't find them. He makes them. He has to save us from our grotesque unworthiness. And He has to make us worthy. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God told Israel through that faithful prophet Ezekiel that a day is coming when all will be united under the reign of one righteous shepherd king. His kingdom will be filled with faithful subjects who will walk in all His ways. He will make an everlasting covenant of peace with them. God Himself will set His sanctuary in their midst forever. He will make His dwelling place with them. He will be their God and they will be His people. But you have to look at the chapter before Ezekiel 37 to see how those faithful kingdom subjects come into being. That chapter presents the new covenant in the Old Testament. Listen to what what God says to an unworthy people that had profaned His name in the nations to which He had exiled them as punishment for their disloyalty to Him, for their sin. Listen to what He says to them. This is Ezekiel 36, verses 24-28. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers 
and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Where does the glorious, holy, and righteous king find worthy subjects for his kingdom? He doesn't find them. He makes them. When Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on the day that we call Palm Sunday, that was the salvation that He came to accomplish. Five days later when He uttered the words, it is finished, as He died on a cross outside the camp of Jerusalem on a hill reserved for the execution of criminals, it was that salvation that He had secured. It was finished. The entire payment for your sin and my sin was made in full. Without that salvation, no human being would ever see the kingdom of God. And friends, unless that salvation is applied to you, you will never see the kingdom of God. There is no other way to see the kingdom of God. How many of the people in Jerusalem were eagerly waiting for that salvation when Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey? Here's a perhaps more telling question. How many of His own twelve disciples were eagerly waiting for that salvation when He came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? <laughs> well, let's see. On the Thursday after that Sunday, the night before He was crucified, right after Judas bailed out and left to betray Jesus, what were the, the eleven men closest to Jesus still arguing about on the night before He was killed? Who's going to be the greatest in His kingdom? Who's going to get to sit at His right hand in His kingdom? <laughs> See, they were, they were assuming they were worthy of the kingdom. And they were ready to jump to the end. To skip right to the end. <laughs> in fact, they thought they were worthy enough to be jockeying for positions of influence. They gave no thought. His twelve disciples gave no thought to the salvation Jesus had actually come from heaven to earth to provide. Many Jews today are still eagerly looking for the return of Messiah, God's servant King to establish His rightful reign over all the nations with Israel at the top of the food chain. But they do not want to hear about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who came to save His people Israel and men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation from their sin by dying as a guilt offering in our place. They don't want to hear about that. Most people don't want to hear about that salvation they don't want to hear that we have wandered far from God, that we are unworthy of our God and King, made worthy only by the perfect sacrifice of that King. The obsession with skipping to the end isn't new, and it certainly isn't limited to Israel. You'll have no trouble at all finding religious people who are counting on a wonderful outcome at the end of this earthly life. 
whatever they call it. Heaven, paradise, nirvana, oneness with the universal essence. And many are trying to get their hands on some piece of that wonderful outcome right now. But if you want to get those religious people really riled up, talk about the absolute unworthiness of any human being to have anything to do with the one true, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God. Talk about their desperate need for the salvation from the penalty and power of their sin that only Jesus provides. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Without that salvation, no person will see the kingdom of God. The rejection by most people of that salvation was prophesied just as clearly as the coming of the the ultimate salvation, the kingdom of Christ. In fact, many of the same passages that prophesy the kingdom prophesy the rejection of the king when he came. The same psalm that foretold Palm Sunday, Psalm 118, just two verses before the words, Hoshiana, Please save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll find these words. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The grandest irony in all of history is this. It was through and even because of the rejection of Jesus by His own people and by mankind, that Jesus accomplished the salvation of human beings. There could be no kingdom of Messiah without the rejection of the King to the point of death on a cross. It would have been a kingdom with no worthy subjects. Because His death alone is the sufficient payment for our sin. In the eyes of our holy God, it's the only payment that makes us clean in His sight and worthy of His kingdom. That applies to every human being who has ever lived in the sin of Adam under the curse of death. And that means it applies to every human being. Jesus came to turn our cold, dead hearts to Him by giving us new hearts so that He may return to the people He has created for Himself. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to pay your everlasting debt to God and to cleanse you and to make you righteous in His eyes, I pray that today, I pray that today will be the day that God draws you to faith in our glorious Savior. If your trust is already in Jesus, I have a question for you. Do you still welcome the salvation that Jesus came the first time to accomplish in you? Or are you trying to skip to the end right now? Don't get me wrong. I'll say again, it's very, very good for us who are believers in Christ 
to be excited, to be filled with eager anticipation for that ultimate salvation, the coming of the glorious kingdom of our Savior and Lord. We are supposed to be longing every single day for that promised deliverance from all injustice, from all corruption, from decay and death and illness and injustice and evil. We are supposed to long for the appearing of our great God and Savior who is going to come to dwell in the midst of His people forever. That eager anticipation is what the writer of Hebrews calls the anchor of our souls during the whole time that we're here on this earth. That deliverance, by the way, is surely coming and it is coming soon. But there's another deliverance. It's really just another facet of that deliverance that God calls us to embrace with the same zeal every day, right now. And that is the salvation that makes us worthy of our coming King and of His kingdom. The salvation that conforms us to Christ and makes us fitting subjects of that kingdom. That salvation is both accomplished and ongoing. The aspect of that salvation that is accomplished has been fully accomplished for all who believe in Jesus is our justification. Our perfectly righteous standing in the eyes of God because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's His. And it's perfect. And we were clothed in that righteousness by His grace through faith, by just trusting, by taking Him at His Word. That justification, fully accomplished, gives us peace with God now and forever. But there's another marvelous facet of that salvation that's still ongoing, and that's our sanctification. The transforming work by which God is conforming us to Christ day by day. That work of God in us won't be finished until our glorification day. When God puts sin completely away from us and these dying, corrupt, unredeemed bodies get redeemed. When He transforms these bodies into immortal, glorious, holy vessels. That process by which God is right now conforming us to Christ in our character and in our works is guaranteed to be painful. It's guaranteed to be painful. It's a refiner's furnace. It's a purifying fire. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus, though He was a son, learned obedience through what He suffered. <laughs> and beloved, if Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered, you can be real sure that you and I are not going to learn obedience without sharing in His suffering. The servant is not greater than the master. Do you welcome that salvation? In fact, do you interpret the suffering in your life as that salvation? Or do you interpret it as a curse? It's all grace. It's all grace for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Or are you bent on skipping to the end right now? getting your hands on the promised kingdom right here, right now, having your best life now. 
The writer of Hebrews says again in Hebrews 12 that that sanctification, that painful, sorrowful work of divine discipline that makes us share in God's holiness is an absolute certainty for every child of God. He says without that painful, purifying work of God, no one will see God. It doesn't mean that we're judged on the basis of imperfect conformity to Christ. It means when God's finished with those whom He has called and justified, they're all going to be glorified. We'll all stand spotless and blameless in the presence of our Savior. That's going to happen if your faith is in Jesus Christ. It's the birthmark of every redeemed man, woman, and child. Are you zealous for that salvation that God is accomplishing in you right now, beloved? If you are, if you're rejoicing in the salvation that's making you ready for Christ's kingdom, how will you actually live day by day? Well, if you're struggling with chronic illness, you'll know that God is using that struggle to make you ready for His kingdom. Instead of lamenting the suffering and wishing away the remaining days of your life on this earth as so many do who are suffering with illness, you'll welcome the opportunity to rejoice in God's good work in you and through you in the lives of other people. If you're in a contentious marriage, you'll know that God is using that struggle to make you ready for His kingdom. Instead of lamenting your situation and doing everything in your power to, to protect yourself from the hurt that's coming at you from your spouse, you'll know that God is teaching you even now to live the life of an overcomer. To really trust the God who always judges justly. You'll know that He is making of you a person whose life and well-being cannot be threatened by anything another sinner like you does to you. If your life is just peachy, if you're financially secure and in good health and your kids are walking with the Lord and your dog greets you with a wagging tail every time you come through the front door and never has an accident on your perfect carpet, you'll expect and welcome the next round of painful refining that is surely coming by God's faithful hand because you know that God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure and that doesn't happen without a struggle. Again in Hebrews 12, the writer says, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. Go Google what a scourge looked like in ancient Rome. Are you zealous for that salvation, beloved? Or are you trying to lay hold of the salvation that's coming before God has finished preparing you for it? One more question that follows from that one and then I'm done. Are you zealous for the salvation that God intends to accomplish through you in others right now. Without the refining work of God in you that actually conforms you to Christ, your witness for Christ is just words. And God may use those words if they're really His because His words are really powerful. But in many cases, people are not going to pay any attention to your testimony about Jesus if your life 
contradicts that testimony. The way God is populating His coming kingdom is through the subjects that He is presently making ready for that kingdom. How you handle how you handle the refiner's fire that's making you holy, worthy of the King, will either drive people toward Christ or away from Christ. If you don't welcome and celebrate that salvation that Jesus came to accomplish in you, that He died to accomplish in you, your response to suffering will be no different than anybody else's. When unbelievers look at you, they'll see nothing special. You know what's the number one thing that an unbeliever looks for in a Christian? Joy. Joy in the midst of suffering. Long time ago, Dennis Prager, I've mentioned this before, he's a Jewish radio talk show host. He said something I will never forget. He said, it is not the opponents of a religion that do the most damage to that religion. It is the joyless adherence of that religion. There's no place in the kingdom of God for joyless adherence when we have been given everything and deserve nothing. We have cause to spend every second of our day from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to bed rejoicing in all that we have been given in Jesus Christ. And if that's not what's happening in your life, you need to take another look at your, your Savior, your God, and you need to fall on your knees and praise Him for what He has done for you because you did not deserve it. We're going to look one more time at this theme of salvation that makes us subjects worthy of our King and of His kingdom when we gather next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We're going to see how God finishes out that marvelous preparation. But between now and then, I have a very simple assignment for you. It'll take just a minute to tell you. I'm going to ask you to carve out one hour this week, one hour, with your spouse and your children, or if you're unmarried, with one or more or a few of your brothers and sisters in Christ to talk about and pray about something before next Sunday. Now, nobody's going to police you or call you up to see if you actually did this. At least I won't. <laughs> but in just a moment, I want to see a show of hands from everyone here who's really, who's willing to make an effort to do this simple assignment. First, let me make sure the assignment's clear. Will you carve out one hour sometime this week before Sunday to sit down with other believers and to talk about and pray about this. Are you zealous for the salvation that God is still accomplishing in you? The salvation that makes you like a precious jewel in His crown, sparkling in His land, worthy of His kingdom and worthy to represent His kingdom in this lost world that He might fill it with more subjects made worthy. Do you embrace that work of salvation and the struggle that it necessarily includes or are you trying to skip that salvation and lay hold of the one that's coming before God's finished making you ready for it? How many of you are willing to take one hour this week to discuss with other believers and to pray about that question? Are you zealous for that salvation?
All right. I have an, a photographic memory, so I'm going to come back and ask everyone. No, I'm just kidding. Let's pray. Father, we ask You to pierce the hearts of any here who have not put their faith entirely in Jesus Christ to save them from the curse of death that they deserve because of their sin, that we all deserve because of our sin. Convict and convince them of their desperate need for the new life that only Jesus gives, the life of relationship and fellowship with You and Your people forever. And Father, we who know Jesus as our Savior ask You to pierce our hearts as well. Remind us daily that the things that make for true peace with You are painful things until the day of our glorification. They are things that break us of all that does not match up with the character and the beauty of our King. Make us joyfully embrace that salvation that You are working in us right now day by day. And make our joy over that salvation evident and attractive to all who do not know our glorious Savior. It's in His name, in the name of our great God and Savior who is surely coming that we pray. Amen.